check, 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 check. All right. Good morning, everyone. You're going to have to respond like a little extra loud. Hey, Jeff. You're going to have to respond a little extra loud this morning because uh, you're, you're filling in for your neighbors around you that, that aren't here. So um, go ahead and take your Bibles. If you've brought one, you use that. If you haven't, there is a, uh, a Bible, probably a lot extra uh, this morning. So grab that. We're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As you're turning there, have Kaylin go ahead and come up. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. For using the Pew Bible, it's page 886. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kaylin. So before I start, I would just uh, make an announcement to you. I am not Matt Maka, so I am wearing plaid, but just so you know, I'm not. My name's Tyler. Um, Matt did have his surgery. It went well. He's resting at home, and they appreciate your prayers. So he is doing well. Well, this morning, as we get started, just ask you to go ahead and turn on your brains, flip the switch on. Did anyone here notice like a general theme in the songs that Kaylin chose for us this morning? Anybody notice? It's Christmas. Christmas. It's not a trick question. Christmas. Did you notice that? Yeah, this morning we're celebrating Christmas, right? And so for the children out there, there's not a lot of you, so sorry, Jim, not you. Children that are out there, what do we celebrate at Christmas time? Jesus was born. That's great. Very good. Yes, we celebrate that Jesus was born. And so in the past couple weeks, I went through, well, what passage of Scripture should we go through this morning? What do we want to, what does God have to say from us? And so looking all through different passages, you can imagine there's, there's tons of them. We've heard many sermons, many a Christmas uh, sermons over, um, over the years, and I felt like God kept calling me back to John 1, where we are this morning. So before we start into John 1, though, I have to prepare your hearts right now. Is everybody 
listening? There aren't any cattles lowing or any kind of mangers or shepherds. Mary and Joseph aren't even mentioned. How could this be a Christmas message, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. Stick with me for a second before you, uh, you know, start a riot or something like that. Have you ever seen a movie where you see the same uh, story told multiple times, but through different people's perspective over the course of the movie? I think there was a recent one, Knives Out, that was kind of like that. You see it through one character, you see the whole story progress, and then you completely change perspectives and you see a different character and you see the whole story progress. And every time you see a different character, the story through their eyes, you get a completely different perspective that gives you a grander picture or more complete picture of the actual story. You guys seen something like that? Can you kind of track with me there? Well, John is giving us a different perspective than what Matthew or Luke or Mark give us um, as well. He's less concerned about some of the details about Jesus's lineage or about Bethlehem and what happened there or about even the night that Jesus was born. But I love John's witness because John He's pulling at our hearts. It's almost like someone's like, hey, John, could you write a gospel? And John's like, well, if I'm going to write a gospel, I'm going to tell this whole story. I want people to understand who I'm talking about here. I can't just jump into the middle. I want them to get the grand picture, the full understanding, so that their hearts are full and understanding, that they feel the emotion, they get the understanding and the feels that goes along with this king that was coming. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be in John. We're going to get that larger, picture, fuller, glorious perspective that comes from him. This morning, we can behold the glory and the grace of Jesus. And in doing so, I'm serious about this, in doing so this morning, we can find everything that our souls long for. That's what we're getting ready to do. So prepare yourself. Prepare your hearts. Don't check out. Oh, it's another Christmas. No. We're here. We're in John. God has something to say to us this morning, I do believe. So, point number one, if you're taking notes, you are taking notes, right? Point number one, because you are taking notes, is the word is glorious, which comes before that point. (laughs) The word is glorious. John wants us to get the picture of this glorious word, of the glorious God. To show us how glorious the word is, though, John starts way, 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 way before the cattle were lowing. In fact, he starts before there was anything lowing at all. John starts where? In the beginning. In the beginning. Before there was wise men, before there was shepherds, before there were sheep, or even stars at all. And does the words in the beginning sound familiar to you? Does it sound like something else you've heard before? Where? Genesis. Yeah, we've even been studying Genesis here over the last couple of months. In the beginning, John chose those words on purpose. That's not just an accident. didn't just happen upon the same words. John is giving a message here in the first couple words. In the beginning, especially to the Jewish readers at that time, it would say, whoa, that's how chapter 1 of Genesis starts. That's what Moses wrote about God was in the beginning. They know exactly where he was going. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And John starts, in the beginning was the word. So John tells us this glorious thing that existed in the beginning, on par or on the same type of authority or time frame or scale of Genesis, which was God the creator, he tells us was the word. Was the word. 
So the use of word here can be a little bit confusing, and it's not the way that we would normally use the word word, right? I would never say, if I said, hey, you know, I saw the word yesterday, you would have no idea what I was talking about. But in, to the readers that John was writing to, the Greek word, logos, which we translate as word, actually meant something to them. They would have understand probably pretty much what he was referring to here. In that time, they would, refer, they would use the term word or logos to refer to like a higher power or an energy. So something that is grander or bigger than what just we understand or what we know. And it was, it was a pretty kind of flexible sort of phrase. It was just kind of like a catch-all for like a spiritual, deeper something that was out there. And we don't use the term word right in our culture today or in America as often that way, but we do use other phrases that are very similar to that. So something like the, you know, spiritual energy that's out there, or the universe decided that we should be together, or, you know, Luke used the force, right? Something that's out there that's bigger than us. Even like Mother Nature, I guess, sometimes plays that role. Like Mother Nature decided it was time for this antelope to die, you know, or something like that. Something bigger than just what we can control that transcends us, that goes beyond us. And that's what John was getting at here when he says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the energy, was the greater force, was the big thing outside of the cosmos and outside of us. And so in doing so, John is inviting everyone who has any kind of an understanding of something outside of themselves to understand what he's about to say. He's not just speaking specifically just to one particular people or group of people who had an understanding of Yahweh even, but just in the beginning was the energy. In the beginning was the higher force. In the beginning was the higher power. So for thousands of years, people have, I'm sure, been trying to figure out what is this higher power? What is this greater thing? We can say stuff like, well, the, the word, you know, will exist after I'm gone, or the word maybe will take care of you later or something like that. But there was no way to know about this word. There was no science that could be done to perform, to check the word. There was no, nothing to look up and understand necessarily what the word was. So John is getting ready to reveal to us who this word is. What is this squishy term word out there, spiritual thing? John, he's going to tell us. Let's keep reading. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So right from the start, John says the Word was with God. And again, to the Jewish readers, you would, they're probably scratching their heads a little bit, but that makes sense. He's already talking about in the beginning, and in the beginning, who was there? Well, it was God. He created everything. But John tells us that there was this other thing with God. It's a little bit confusing, not sure who that is, but this thing existed before time, before creation, before there was anything. He was with God. He is an eternal thing. But John says not only was he with God, but he was God also. So the word was with God, he was near God, he was for God, and he was also God. Well, that's confusing just a little bit. It's confusing to us, and I'm sure it was confusing to the initial readers as well. But the word is unlike anything else we've ever known. In a sense, John is kind of filling up our hearts already in just verse 2 by blowing our minds. In the beginning was the word. I'm going to tell you something about him. He was with God, and he was God. Now, notice John doesn't say that the word was God, and God was the word. There's a distinction still being made. The word was with, present with God, but the word also 
was God. And notice also that in verse 2, John says that it was a he. He was in the beginning with God. So you see how he's starting to kind of give us some more details that we couldn't know otherwise. The word was with God. The word was God. Same playing field, part of God. And it was a he. So that sounds like a person. It's not just a force. It's not just a power or an energy that's out there just doing stuff. But there's a personal aspect to it. With God, was God, and a person. So we know so far that the word has always existed with God, has always been for God, is God, and is still distinct personhood in God. At this point, our our hearts are getting just a little glimpse of who he is. But John's going to tell us a little bit more. He's going to tell us not only who he is, but also what he has done. Let's go to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So according to John, the word was not just watching when God was creating stuff. He was with God in the beginning when the world was created, but he was also an active participant in creation. And it wasn't like God and the word divided up some things where the God the Father was like, I'll do the ocean and the fish and you take the, you know, the land and the, I don't know, shrimp or something like that. No, it says that everything was made through him, all things. And just in case there's any doubt or there's a way he's like, well, maybe there was something that existed before the, the word or something, John settles it in the second way he, he rephrases it. He says, and without him, without the word, was not anything made that was made. Without the word, was not anything made that was made. He leaves no room for argument. The word was responsible for the creation of absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Just think about that for a moment. Don't, get too, don't jump too fast through this. This should land on us pretty heavy. Look down at your hands right now. Look at your hands. The word that we're talking about made you. Made this. Made your body. What you can see right now around this room, every single part of it, the word made. The word made the sun that's millions of miles away from us right now. The word made the nuclear fusion reaction going on in the sun right now that's shooting out photons millions of miles coming through these windows, hitting the carpet, bouncing off, hitting me in the eyeballs, my nerve cells in my eyes recognizing that stimulation, sending a signal to my brain My brain who recognizes those little electrical impulses and say, oh, that looks like it's red and it's a color and there's stripes there and can recognize patterns and see pictures and make reason of that. The word created all that and way, 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 way more. The point being that everything, everything that was made, he made. Did you have a thought just now? He made your brain able to think that thought. Are you hearing me? He made your eardrums able to resonate and hear me. Everything. Everything. So right now, before we move even any further, let's just sit and marinate for a moment in who the word is. He's God. He has always existed. And not as he always existed and out there, but completely detached from us, he's the reason we were created. He made us. He made everything that we see. If we were to worship something in the universe, who should it be but the Word? 
that now John has revealed to us. You see, John is trying to convey, he's trying to fill our hearts up. Before he goes into anything about mangers or anything like that, John is trying to tell us through the Holy Spirit, look at the wonder of the word. Consider who I'm talking about here. In the beginning, before anything, before time, was the word, and he created everything that you see. In fact, without him, nothing that you see right now would exist, including us. So we've learned about who the Word was. We learned about what he has done. Our hearts are getting slowly filled up more and more, but he's even more glorious than even just that. John has more to tell us about this Word. He's going to tell us something that the Word also does that should rock our worlds. Verse number four. Look at that with me. In him, in the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow, so this powerful, glorious word, who is God, who has always existed, who created us, who made matter and things, not only did he just wind up this giant machine that's the world or people, but in him, in the word himself, is life. So even apart from people, before there was creation, there was life in the Word. And any life that we have in us, what separates me from this music stand, life, heartbeat, comes from the Word. He is the source of life. Just to drive it home, put your hand over your hearts. You feel your heart beating right now? Take a breath, you can breathe. We are alive. That life has come from the Word. We can't take that lightly. I can't keep my heart beating. I can't give myself the ability to take another breath apart from, right now, the Word who not only created me, but is giving me life and sustaining me right now. He is glorious. He is worthy of our all and our praise And John says life in verse 4, but then he also connects it to light. Did you notice that? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John uses the the word light a lot in the rest of his gospel, and he almost always uses it to convey like a higher form of life. So what's meant by in him was life, and that life was the light of men, is there's a lot of things that have life. Plants have life. Raccoons have life. But man has an extra level of life, a spiritual life. That extra level of light, that light of men, comes from the Word also. So not only is the Word giving us physical life, the ability to think and reason and breathe and exist and walk around, but he also has given us and is the source of spiritual life, true life, full life, eternal life. Matt's used the um, demonstration for us multiple times before of something dead versus something alive. Anybody remember some of those, some of those examples we've seen here before? It brought in all kinds of things, right? And, and has often highlighted for us the difference because the Bible uses it multiple times over and over to explain our state of dead versus alive thing. Well, I actually found this morning at my house outside... It's a little bit soggy, but I found a, uh, no, just kidding, it's a sweatshirt. 
Um, but you understand the picture, right? You remember the dead raccoon? That dead raccoon that was in here, if I had one, I would have brought it in, but I didn't, still had little raccoon fingers and a raccoon face, but that dead raccoon couldn't wash cute little apples in the water, right? Couldn't romp around, couldn't climb any trees. Why? It was dead, right? It had all the parts of a raccoon, but it wasn't living. It wasn't breathing. It wasn't alive. It had no blood pumping through its veins. It was dead. It couldn't do anything. Whereas the live raccoon has all the same pieces and everything, but now with life inside of it, can do things, is active, move around, can breathe, can exist. There's a radical difference between death and life. Life comes from the word. All of life comes from the word. And John wants there to be no mistake either. The word has absolute power. Verse number five says to us, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not what? The darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so this light, the word that he's talking about, this perfect light that gives life to man, the spiritual life, true life to man, the darkness has not overcome it. Nothing is going to take over this light. Nothing is going to overcome this light. And I love the fact that it says, has not. It's like a past tense. It's like already settled. The darkness has not overcome it. There's no chance. See, like, especially in the audience that John would have been writing to, and I think we still have the same notion today, is like good versus evil is always struggling back and forth, right? And like sometimes good has the upper hand, but sometimes evil has the upper hand. Sometimes light prevails and sometimes darkness prevails. And you're just constantly battling back and forth and back and forth. And John leaves no room for that when you're thinking about the word. He says the word is light and the darkness has not overcome it can't overcome it. We'll never prevail over it. The light is final. It's settled. He has power over the darkness. So let's consider where we are now this morning as John is trying to convey to us the glory that is this word. As he's starting from the beginning, he's filling our hearts up so that we can get a piece of an understanding of an appreciation and a love for this word. If we were starting from just a blank slate, in the beginning was the word, was the thing, was the higher thing out there. At this point, we have a much better informed idea of who this word was, and it's way more glorious than what we could have imagined. Don't you agree? If you had a sketchbook and it's like, okay, I want you to try to draw now this word, and you were starting from nothing, what we could come up with wouldn't even come close to touching what John has told us. It's way beyond what we can think of. It's way beyond just what people can do. I like think about some, you know, ancient gods about like in Greek mythology or in times of Egypt or something. And they always have some kind of a human characteristic to them or limitation or trait in some way that makes them human-like. It's no wonder they were thought of up by humans. We, all we know is about what we can see and what we can imagine comes from the things that we can see and experience here on earth. But the word is completely unlike us. I just made a quick little list. He was in the beginning. We were not in the beginning. He is God. We are not God. He created all things. We were created. He is the source of life, and we need life. Do you see the gap widening in your understanding right now and in our hearts between who this word really is and who we are? It's like the more that I was reading this, the more that I was praying over this, the more I felt like the Spirit was just stirring up inside, just like, 
wow, the word is grand and glorious and mighty and incomprehensible, and I am very, 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 very tiny right now. I couldn't exist without the word. I can't breathe without the word. I can't think without the word. I have no hope of life apart from the word. The word is truly glorious, truly marvelous. And I think it may be good for us then to just consider, do we think of the word this way? Do we think of God and the person in him of the word like this, with this type of glory, with this weight, with this splendor? Or do we just say, well, we'll think about that word and spend some time with him on Sunday morning for a little bit. Or maybe I'll, you know, consider the word after I, you know, browse Snapchat. After I golf. Of course, there's nothing wrong with those things. But the point being that if we saw the word for the glorious, one-of-a-kind, unique God that he is, it would consume all of our thoughts, all of our being. Everything we do would have something to do with the word. He is the one that's out there that created us, that's holding me together right now. How could I not give him thought or notion or consideration or adoration or worship or just praise or thankfulness? I woke up this morning. I'm breathing. I can talk right now. That came from the word. He's doing that right now. Christ Church, I encourage all of us, let's see the true glory of the word. He's greater than anything that we know. He's greater than anything we could imagine, anything we could think up, anything we could think that we need or we want or that will satisfy us. It doesn't compare to the word. He's the one that made us. He's the one that is breathing life into us. He is the one that offers us light when we're in darkness. Well, next, John is going to transition here a little bit as we get into verse 6. John's going to tell us something miraculous that was going to happen on the earth. So this is the first time we get in the chapter of John where he's going from just talking about and describing the word, what the word has done, and now he's going to bring it to earth a little bit. He's going to make a connection to something that's going to happen. And what's going to happen is God is going to do something with the word. God and the word are going to work together to do something that was completely miraculous, glorious, and unexpected. But he doesn't just blurt out his plan. Instead, he, he builds some anticipation. It's kind of like um, if you're like going on a trip, sometimes with our kids, we don't tell them the surprise right away. Have you ever done that or your parents ever done that for you? I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but next Tuesday, we're going to do something very special. And so you should you know, make sure your homework's done by then or make sure you're ready for it or something. And then maybe a day or two goes past and you say, don't forget on Tuesday... Something special is going to happen, and you might want to bring your swimsuit, you know, something like that. That encourages, it kind of builds that excitement, anticipation. It also doesn't just slam them with the, you know, the big news of what's going to happen. It's more of a slow reveal. It builds anticipation and joy and, and hope in that. Well, God sent a man named John the Baptist to the earth, and he was doing, I think, basically that. Verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John who wrote this letter. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, the word, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, 
So basically, John is preparing the world for something truly unbelievable. He's kind of like the hype man. He's telling everybody, hey, something big is coming here. You're going to want to listen. You're going to want to pay attention to what's going to happen. The word is coming. This is a big reveal, a big surprise. And in verse 9, we're told what the surprise is. The true light, the word, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Let me read that again, just so that hits us with the weight that it should. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The word was coming into the world. The one that made the cosmos, that existed before time even started, he was going to enter into this little tiny speck of a planet, the world. He was going to become a man. He was going to be born like all of us have been. He was going to have a mother. And what was his name? That's not rhetorical. What was his name? Jesus. This is Jesus that we're talking about. John doesn't tell us that for a few more verses. But this is a truly miraculous, mind-blowing thing. Jesus came into the world, the word that existed before time began, the one who was making the world have life, where every person in the world that has life, the word was sustaining it, the word was going to enter in and walk like a man, was going to have flesh like a man, who was going to become a man. And so at this point, this seems like really great news. We don't really know exactly why the word is coming, but just grab a hold of what we've heard so far from John and where our hearts have been and filled with the glory of who the word is, this miraculous being, this one that is the source of true light and life. He's coming to the world. Well, That should be great news, right? Because the world's a broken place and there's death and there's darkness and there's lack of hope and there's problems. There's people that need things. This is the one who created everything. Surely he can meet their needs. This is the one who is the source of life. Certainly he can help those that are lost in darkness. This sounds like it's going to be great. This is going to be an awesome event. This is going to be the surprise of all surprises. So in verse 10, look down at your Bible. Verse 10, this is what John says about that time. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So the world knew him. No. That's not what John said. That's, that's the way that kind of phrase sounds like it's going to go, though, doesn't it? He was in the world. The world was made through him. So the world knew him. But instead, John says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. The world did not know the word. Point number two, the word was rejected. Now, the term did not know here, it's worse than you think. It's not just that the word came in Jesus and that the world was like, oh, Jesus, we've never met before. I don't know you. It wasn't like that. To not know in this sense meant to not, to choose to not know. To decisively not accept or let someone in into a knowing relationship. It's not that they just didn't recognize him. It's that they didn't want to know him. They didn't want to receive him. 
the world rejected Jesus completely, decisively, kind of like an act. It's not that they were going to, well, we don't know him now, but maybe we're going to get to know each other more and more. The way this John wrote this was the world chose decisively not to know him when he came. Verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came to his own. Literally the way it translates is he came home. He came home. He came to his own people. He came to his creation. He came to Israel. These were the people of God, remember? Israel. The people that we've been learning about in Genesis who God called out of nothing and made them a people who blessed them and blessed them and blessed them, who fought battles for them, who gave them riches, who spoke to them, who revealed himself, who wrote down characteristics and truth about his heart, about who he is, about what he's done. God revealed all that to the children of Israel. He proclaimed and said, I am going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send someone to the earth. And yet what we read in verse 11 should break our hearts. The word came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You know, I've heard people say before, well, I'll believe in God when he gives me a reason to believe in him. You ever heard something to that effect? Maybe even thought it? Verse 11 completely shows that that argument or that line of thinking is completely false. No one was blessed more than Israel. No one had seen God more than Israel. No one had a reason to believe in God more than Israel. They had seen him time and time again act on their behalf, speak to them, walk with them, part the Red Sea for them. And yet his own people did not receive him. I was trying to picture what this could be like. So imagine there's a mom and a dad of a family of, say, three kids. So kind of like mine, because it's easy for me to think of that. Say the kids are three, five, and seven, something like that. Okay? And so mom and dad have grown up with these children. The mom birthed them, nursed them, fed them, has taught them what they know. She's with them every single day. She's never gone on a vacation She's never left her children. And then when they're three, five, and seven, she decides that she's going to go on just a quick week-long trip. So she says, I'm going to be back. I love you guys. See you. Kiss you. Out the door. She goes away to her trip. Has a great time. As she's coming back, right before she arrives, she calls her husband. The husband gets it and says, hey, kids, your mom is coming. She's coming back. She's going to be here any moment. And mom shows up opens the front door. The kids rush over and say, who are you? She says, I'm your mom. Remember, we've spent seven years together all day long. I've cared for you. I've given you everything you need, everything you want. And the children say, you're not our mother. And we don't want you to be our mother. We don't need you to be our mother. That's crazy, right? That's just a terrible picture of really what was happening here. The weight of Jesus coming to the earth, of Jesus coming to his own people, of Jesus coming to his creation, to his children, 
to the ones that he's giving life to, to the ones that he made in his image, and he shows up, and they do not believe in him. They don't receive him. They reject him. Church, I believe that this is probably one of the most condemning passages in all of Scripture. The Word became flesh in the man of Jesus. And we, humans, people, made in his image, rejected him. John 3.18, I'm going to put this up on the screen. Just a couple chapters later. This is actually Jesus talking. This is after Jesus is talking about that he came to the earth to save the world. And that life can be found in him. He says these words, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What Jesus is saying here is that whoever believes in him is not condemned. He's he's brought life to them. But whoever does not believe is not condemned by Jesus' coming. He's condemned by his own heart. He's condemned already because he doesn't believe in Jesus. The world not receiving, not believing in Jesus when he came and rejecting the word when he was made man proves our condemnation. It proves that we are deserving of hell, of eternal punishment, of damnation. We are damned because because of our unbelief in the word. When Jesus came and we rejected him, we proved that we were against God. We proved that we were in active rebellion against him. I don't know you. I don't want you. You're not the creator of the universe. You don't give me life. How pathetic is that? But that is our heart, default heart position. We are against the God of the universe. We have rejected him. We have rejected the word. Mankind deserves eternal punishment for rejecting the word. And if we left it there, this would leave us at no hope whatsoever. The word came was available to people, made himself known to people, and we wouldn't believe. Worst Christmas ever. (laughs) Thankfully, though, John starts the next verse, verse 12, with what word? What starts verse 12? But, but, oh, thank you, Lord. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you catch what came after the but? But to all who did receive him, who all who did believe him. How can this be possible? Didn't John just tell us that the world rejected the word? Didn't John just tell us that even his own people, when he came home, rejected him and wouldn't believe in him? How can there be a but to all who did believe in him? What happened? How does that exist? We couldn't believe. We were in darkness. We were dead. We were unbelievers. People that are dead just don't make themselves alive. People that are in darkness can't just all of a sudden see without light. The second half of verse 12 gives us the answer, though. 
He gave the right to become children of God. The word, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. Point number three is the word gave. The right to become children of God came from Jesus. He gave it to us as a gift. It was not something that we could earn, work hard for, think really hard on, muster up enough faith in ourselves. We were given the gift by Jesus to become children of God. And I think the way that the phrase is here doesn't work quite with our language. He says he gave the right to become children of God. At least for me, when I read that, I think of a right like the right to vote. Like, I have the right to vote. I can vote if I want to. I don't have to, but I have the right to do it. That's not what this is supposed to convey to us. He gave the right means he gave us the status or the standing or the authority to be children of God. He has given us the new rank to be children of God. It's not that he's given us the choice. He's given us the new position. And he gave us the right to become. To become. There's an act of changing of position. There's a change in status. We used to not be children of God. We used to be, according to Ephesians, children of wrath. But Jesus gave the right, the new position, the status to become children of God. He has transferred us. He has transformed us from dead things to life things, from things outside of God's family to children inside of his family. Not to slaves, not to groundskeepers, not to trash men, but to his children, to be a part of his family. What a miraculous transformation. What a gift that he gave us He gave us adoption as sons. He gave us a new birth. Church, Jesus came to earth knowing that we would reject him. He's the word, right? He wasn't surprised. He didn't come and was rejected. I was like, man, oh, Father, did you see? I didn't think this was, you know. He knew. In fact, that is why he came. He came because we were unbelievers. He came to earth to be rejected by his creation. And from the moment that he came, we've sang about it already this morning, from the moment he came, he suffered. He constrained himself to be in flesh, to be a man, to walk on the earth, to feel the pain that we feel, to be tempted by sin, and ultimately to be beaten and to be killed like a criminal, even though he had never done anything wrong. That was the word. He was killed To bear the wrath of God. To take the punishment that the unbelievers deserve. For our act of rebellion and saying, we do not want you to be our God. We don't believe in you. We don't receive you. Jesus came and bled and died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserved. To take that damnation that should have rested solely on us. And we deserved it. Jesus took that on the cross for us. He paid the debt that we owed, and he rose again and conquered sin and death. And in doing so, Jesus made it possible for unbelievers to become believers. He rescued the unbelievers, and he did it by allowing them to now believe. That's what I think verse 12 is getting at. There's two parts of this salvation that's occurring. There's the but to all who did believe. We believe. Jesus gave 
a new birth. Two parts of the same thing. We believe Jesus gave a new birth. We believe in Jesus. Jesus gave a new birth. Now, probably already from the moment I said that, you might be thinking in your head, well, which one comes first? How do, what's, the, what's the order of events here? Do I believe? And then because I believe, I'm, Jesus makes me into a child of God. I'm like transferred after I believe. Or do I become a child of God first? And then because I'm a child of God, my eyes are opened and I can believe. I would say, Try not to think that one through, because I don't think that's what John is getting at here at all. I think he's describing two things that are true about the same group of people. Those who believe, who received him, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. It's two parts of the same thing. It's two parts of the unbelievers becoming believers. I heard this little analogy, and I think it's helpful. So if you don't mind, close your eyes and now open them. Okay, when you opened your eyes, did you open them first or did you see things first? Don't try to break down the analogy too much, but the idea is our eyes are open when we can see, and we can see when our eyes are open. If my eyes were open, my eyes function, then I have to be seeing things. If I can see things, then my eyes must be open. In a similar way, I believe when I am a child of God, and I am a child of God when I believe Or to put it negatively, you can't split these apart. I cannot be an unbelieving child of God. It's impossible. If I'm a child of God in his family, united to him, that I can't not believe in him. In the same way, I can't be believing in God and then still be a child of wrath. I can't believe in Jesus and then not have my sins covered. These two things work together. Two parts, me believing in Jesus and Jesus giving me a new birth. But, just considering that, of those two parts, which one do we play an active role in? Do we give ourselves new birth? No. Do we believe? Yes, we do. The belief part is something that we do take a part in, that we are involved in, that deals with our hearts. So, let's spend a couple moments just talking about belief then, since that's the piece that we get to be involved in. Belief in Jesus is central to the book of John. If you remember when we studied it a couple years ago, John goes chapter after chapter after chapter of just really unpacking what it means to believe. What believe is, what believe isn't. He uses different pictures and different analogies and different ideas and concepts to slowly just keep unpacking more and more so our hearts can get fuller and fuller with what belief in Jesus really means. In fact, we'll put it up on the screen. John 20, 31 Toward the end of John's book, he tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. You remember? This is what John says. These are written, Gospel of John was written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what some of what John has unpacked for us and what belief means through the rest of his book, and I encourage you to go there if you get an opportunity, is that belief is way more than just one act. Belief is way more than just a decision that you make. Belief in Jesus is all-consuming. It involves our minds, having understanding and knowledge, but it also involves our hearts, having faith, having trust. 
It involves our desires that we want and we desire, we long for Jesus and who he is. John uses words like we drink Jesus, we eat his flesh. Point that he is our sustainer. He is our source of life. He is our nourishment. He is everything to us. He is what we cherish, what we savor, what we hope in, what we dream of. Jesus and hope and belief and trust in him touches every part of our lives. You can't just say, I believe in Jesus' name when I was seven, and so I'm saved. I'm a believer. That's not it. There's no such thing as just casual belief. It's all-encompassing. It uses all of us. It's multifaceted. That's why John says in verse 12, if you look at it, he doesn't say just believe Jesus, although he could have said that. He says, believe in his name. Did you catch that? Believe in his name. To believe in Jesus' name means to believe in everything that Jesus is, everything that he has described about himself and revealed about himself, in his person, in his character, in his power, in his heart for us. It's believing in Jesus. It's believing on Jesus. It's not just believing something that he said. Just as a simple example, when I was a little kid, say five or six or something like that, when my dad would come home from work, he'd come in the front door, me and my siblings would lie at the top of the stairs, which is outside of the, right inside the front door. He would come into work, uh, come home from work, open the front door, come in, and we would jump off the top stairs to him and he would catch us. Happened to us every night when he would come in from work. I loved it, looked forward to it, could still remember that now. And in thinking about that, in those moments, I was believing that my dad said he would catch me, right? That was something my dad had told me, I will catch you. I was believing that my dad said he would catch me. But it didn't just end there. I was also believing that my dad was able to catch me, right? My Tate could say he could catch me, and I wouldn't have faith to jump to him because he, he's not able to catch me. So I believed that my dad said he would catch me. I believed that my dad was able to catch me. I also believed that my dad would choose to catch me. He was strong enough. He was able to. He told me he would. I know that he did. And I knew his heart that he loved me. He would choose to catch me as his son. And then what would I do? I would jump. I would jump. I would put that belief that I had in my dad into action. You see how it was all wrapped up together? And in doing so, I would find joy. I would find life. I would be flying through the air. I would find excitement and pleasure in the belief that it was put into action in my father in that moment. That just gives us a little piece of an idea of what it's like to believe in Jesus' name. We're believing with our hearts. We're giving trust to him and, and faith in him about Okay, I know who you are, Lord. I know what you're going to do. I know that you are faithful. I know that you love me. I know that you will protect me. I know that you will continue to save me. We're also believing what he has said, that he is a good shepherd. We believe what he's done, what's recorded for us in Scripture, that he came to earth, that he was a man, that he was in the beginning, that he was the word. Belief in Jesus involves all of us. Our whole being, every single piece of us. And if you think about it, I, I love this part of just considering, as, as I was studying this week in verse 12, those two pieces of we believe in Jesus and he gives us the right to become children of God. Us believing in Jesus, that's a gift that God gave us. What I mean by that is he 
could have chosen redemption to take part completely apart from us. He didn't, but he could have. He's God. It's within his, his right or his power to do that. But he chose to let us be involved in our own redemption. He allows us to have the joy, the pleasure of believing on him, of experiencing the word, the person of the word, and being a part of becoming children of God. It's not just like, bam, children of God. Okay, you guys get to the right, you guys get to the left. We are active participants in being children of God. We get to eat Jesus. We get to soak in him. We get to understand more of him. We get to get our minds blown by him. We get to take part in belief in Jesus. We get to take part in redemption. And that's a gift to us. That's for our joy. That's for God's glory that we get to do that. It's not just a requirement. Look at verses 14 through 16. This is John sort of closing up the prologue of of his book. And he's going to sort of wrap up what we have already talked about here this morning. But of course, he's going to add us even a few more reasons for us to glory and worship the word. Verse 14, I'm going to start reading there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. To the believer, Jesus gives gift upon gift, favor upon favor, revealing upon revealing, Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And it comes from, not from a well that eventually if you pull enough it's going to go dry. It comes from his fullness, from his overflowing. Part of the word's character is that he is full of grace and truth. He is overflowing with, with grace and truth. Truth. He has given us the gift of believing. And he continues to give us more reasons to believe in him. More grace for us to be able to respond to. More hope for us to see and be able to respond to in belief. It's like we get more and more pieces to believe. It's kind of like you imagine unbelievers have zero belief at all and reject Jesus. But the believers, us that are children of God, we believe a little bit. We get enough of a picture of him where we can put our hope and our faith and our trust in him and depend on him. But then as we get to know him some more, we see even more of him. And so we believe even more. And our belief has even more action because now we're taking steps about the belief of things that we know about now that we didn't know yesterday. And friends, that goes on and on for eternity because Jesus gives grace upon grace upon grace. I love animal documentaries. Did you know that about me? Really, I love creation documentaries. That's what I'm going to start calling them now because it really is what it is. I love the wonder of creation as we are exploring it. One that I saw not so long ago was about color, about how what happens in creation that uses color, how animals use color, how plants, how we perceive color. And so they went through the course of how we get, we've gotten cameras that have gotten better and better at, at recognizing color, of splitting it down and digitizing it, of letting us be able to see and observe colors that we, that we hadn't seen so brightly ever before. But then at one point in the documentary, it changed to show us that actually, up until recently, we didn't know, we actually weren't even seeing all the colors that were being used in the created world. 
See, we can see the rainbow, right? The color of the rainbow. And the highest frequency that we can see happens to be violet. But there's actually still, the color scale keeps going beyond that. We can't see it, but it keeps going. Ultraviolet light, you've heard of that, right? Well, in this documentary, they have special cameras that are now able to see ultraviolet light. And what we've seen is that birds have ultraviolet colors and patterns on them. Butterflies do, flowers even. That some bugs are going toward flowers just because what looks like a plain white flower to us is actually colorful in the ultraviolet spectrum. And birds and bugs can see it and go to that flower because of that. Completely not able to be perceived by us until recently with some help of technology. It's kind of like Jesus giving us grace upon grace. It's almost like we get more and more to believe. We get more and more colors of light. Just when we think we've seen everything that there is to see around us, it's like he just kicks the slider up to the next notch, and now we can go even higher in the spectrum, and we can see even more clearly. Wow, there's colors on this I didn't even know. There's parts to you I never even saw before. I didn't know I never experienced before. And church, that's never going to change. For all of eternity in the future, we will never fully know God. He's inexhaustible. It's from his fullness that we're getting grace upon grace. So just picture that analogy that I gave you about seeing ultraviolet color, but just keep going for all of eternity. There's more color that we haven't seen. There's more color that we haven't seen. There's more things about Jesus for us to believe in. There's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. We're never going to stop having things to believe in Jesus about. We're never going to get the corner on. We've got all the belief of Jesus. We've seen everything that there is to see about him. Now we believe it. We just get to see more and more. And it gets better, and it gets better, and it gets better, and it gets better. And I think that's what John is conveying to us. I think that's John's heart of what he wants us to grasp this morning. In the beginning was the word. Generic, plain, some idea that maybe you kind of have in your head. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word created you. The Word sustains you. The Word came to you, but you rejected Him. But the Word knew that, and the Word offered you life. The Word gave you adoption, gave you new birth. The Word gave you the ability to believe and take part in becoming His children. And now the Word is going to give you glory give you grace upon grace upon grace as we see more and more of His glory, as we behold more and more of who He is. I think that's what John wants us to take away this morning. I think that's what the Spirit is saying through his word, is that the word is glorious. He's God. He's eternal. He created all things. He deserves all of our affection. He deserves all of our praise, all of our thoughts, all of our actions that we can do. The word deserves that. And yet, even when the word walked on earth, the word was rejected. He was rejected by us, which showed us our hearts. It condemned us. But we did not believe in God's Son. However, the Word gave. The Word gave the gift of new birth to all those who believe in Jesus' name. Amen. And then the Word gives grace upon grace upon grace. So this morning, if you are here and you've never believed in the Word, if you have never believed in Jesus— then what are you waiting for? See Jesus for his glory. See him for who he is as the creator, the one who made you. Recognize that you are by default opposed to him, rejecting, not believing in him, 
But then believe. Receive the gift to become children of God. Be a believer. There is so much grace upon grace waiting for you. Do not put it off. Do not wait. And if you are a child of God this morning, if you have been given the gift of being a child of God, if you do believe in Jesus, then keep believing more and more. Worship Jesus as your Savior. Strive to believe in him. See him as glorious. See him as your Savior. See him as the reason that you exist and were created. Believe in him and drink in more and more grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. As he just keeps sliding the dimmer switch up where we just see things brighter and brighter and more clear and more clear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you have shown us who you are. I thank you that you have told us about your glory and explained to us about our own state. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us the gift to become children of God. Lord, I pray that this morning that our hearts would be overflowing with who you are. I pray that we would take away not just knowledge or understanding as if we had just attended a lecture or a Bible class. But Lord, we ask you that by the power of your Holy Spirit that our hearts would be transformed, our hearts would be softened, our hearts would be full of who you are. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to believe you more. Help us to see you for who you really are. Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our adoration. We love you, Lord. Amen.